Welcome to Illumination by Modern Campus, the leading podcast focused on transformation and change in the higher education space. On today's episode, we speak with Katherine Newman, who is Provost and Executive Vice President of Academic Affairs at the University of California System. Katherine and podcast host Amr Alawalia talk about the roots of the micro-credential movement and creating a space for collaboration when it comes to policy. Katherine Newman, welcome to the Illumination podcast. It's great to be chatting with you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, now, uh, for, for the benefit of our listeners, it's worth knowing we... Catherine and I have been chatting for the better part of about 15 minutes and then realized that we needed to get the recorder going. So we'll exactly. we'll dive right in. But Catherine, you're uh you've just arrived back in California. Um you're you're at the system office now with the UC. The, the way you and I, our working relationship began was around mapping out and viewing this phenomenon of micro-credentials through through sort of a broader lens. And what we were talking about at the moment we realized we needed to start recording was <laughs> where um, were the roots of, of the micro-credentialing movement in general. Now, I think one of the points that it's absolutely fascinating to me is this idea of shifting from credentials that maybe had more general signals to moving towards a, an environment where credential there's a greater demand for credentials that specialize. Can you speak a little bit more to how this movement is playing out in terms of learner demand and and how institutions are are adapting to that shifting demand. Yes, so I think this is most visible in the higher reaches of higher education. So when we look at master's degrees, for example, um, for a long time, MBAs have been growing and growing, high demand, very high salaries. It seemed like we could never produce enough of them. And all of a sudden, that seemed to flip in the direction of more specialized master's degrees, master's of science in marketing, master's of science in um, uh, financial analysis. And the MBA started to recede. And this is partly supply and demand, I think. We just overproduced MBAs and that credential started to lose traction. But also, I think firms that were interested in hiring our graduates began to believe that those specialized credentials were particularly important for productivity, especially in highly technical areas. So financial management is a pretty technical area. Anything connected to data science, very technical area. And as those technical demands grew, the general credential of an MBA started to lose value. And so we've seen a big, big shift uh, along those lines. So that's one that's one source. I just think it rec- it recognizes the increasing technological sophistication of industry. But there's a whole other source that's almost at the other end of of education and that is the role of higher education in preparing people for uh the blue collar labor market which also became more technologically sophisticated. Um but where uh quality control for example turned out to be really important. Um, or other other kinds of um, logistical issues became important. You had Amazon just massive expansion in logistics and supply chains. And those are very delimited areas that don't necessarily require a huge broad education, but they're very specific in what they want people to know. And so this turf battle emerged between Amazon, for example, which began to spin up its own training programs in order to supply its own enormous labor market, and universities, community colleges that were starting to see their own student population drift away and get worried that that was 
they were going to lose them. So micro-credentials speak to the need for very specific requirements in the labor market. I think they are most successful over the long run when they are patched on the back of a, of a more general education. What worries me is the, the pathway sometimes I hear people trying to sell you don't need a college education. All you need is this micro-credential. Right. That will get you a job right away. And it may well get you a job right away. And it'll get you a job in which you will plateau and yes. not be able to go any further because all you know is this one area. Um, but I do think that these, these dynamics are some of the things that produced a, an interest in micro-credentials. And it was most pronounced in the continuing education space because those are people often coming back for more specialized credentials that will help them get ahead in the job market, as opposed to the entry level, which is what you would see more in the community colleges aiming for something much more practical. But the practical side is important to students who need to be able to get jobs and, and universities have been slow to recognize their role uh, and I think are growing their own understanding of their role in providing people with practical experience and education in and outside the classroom that will qualify them for these jobs. You know what's interesting? As, as you frame that out, it it speaks to, to me to a diversification of, of the post-secondary product where, you know, we had a, a very limited and specific set of offerings that, you know, it was kind of up to the learner to define the value and the outcome that they would get from that experience. But we now have a, a, a broad swath of options for them to, you know, either take our traditional product or to, you know, add, add pieces onto that product or to modularize the product and sort of come back into and out of the institution over the course of a lifetime. How do we respond to or stay flexible to that reality of, of instead of, you know, to be crass, instead of selling one kind of product, we're now selling a, a, a massive diverse portfolio that requires in some ways a, a philosophical shift on the part of the institution around its role and relationship with the, with the learner. Yes. And it's a very difficult adjustment, especially for people who've been in more traditional forms of higher education for a long yeah. time, because it's a new world for them and not one that they're necessarily comfortable with. Um, but I think the marketplace is speaking here. Students are migrating to where they can find the kind of training and experience that they think they're going to need when they leave us and go out into the labor market. And I think, you know, the beginnings of this decades ago, if you look at what Northeastern University did with its co-op program, that was a at the time, you know, that was a kind of working class commuter institution. And when you look at it now, it's like the model everyone else is trying to catch up to because experiential education, co-ops, the, the bridging that gulf between the higher education world and the work world has become a responsibility for universities that they didn't used to have. A thousand years ago, when I was a student, there was a student employment office, and that is it. There was no expectation the university was going to help you find a job or train you to, to, to get a job. And now you look at surveys and students are telling us loud and clear, especially as the cost of higher education has grown, they expect that we're going to be helpful in easing their way into the labor market. And that has led to a boom in experiential education, many more institutions trying to find their way toward the co-op structure Northeastern developed decades ago. Um, 
And the boundary between employers and the training they offer and universities and the education we offer has become something of a contested and blended world that we're still trying to sort out. Uh, but it's we're trying in, in the university world to learn more about what employers need and figure out how we include that. But we're, we still believe in and employers hire for people with general education, with an ability to learn, with an ability to think critically, because the first job you get is not the last job you get. And your ability to learn is something that we help to nurture in higher education. But that, this is a, a, a territory that is shifting around a great deal. And how specific should that education be? Should that right. training, how, how tailored should it be to the labor market? The more elite the university, the less you see that kind of tailoring, the more, you know, open access and highly competitive as a result, the more you see an attempt to speak to those very, uh, very pronounced needs of students to find jobs and to have the skills they need to compete for them. Well, and that's, it's a, it's a valuable point as well, which is that, you know, no one model makes sense for every post-secondary institution. I think, you know, we've all we've all recognized some of the folly of that approach as, as you know, we saw so many institutions trying to mimic a Harvard style right. approach to, to institutional management, which just doesn't make sense for the majority of, of colleges and universities. Now, um, I am curious about, about your thoughts on, on creating a, a, a level of cohesion within an institution when it comes to micro-credentialing, because we know, you know, as you mentioned, in the continuing ed space, micro-credentialing has been a core part of, of the portfolio for decades, whereas we're now seeing academic faculties um, starting to, to dip their toe into these waters, both sometimes in partnership with continuing ed, sometimes not. Um, we're seeing registrar's offices building policies around micro-credentialing, but again, sometimes in collaboration, sometimes not. As a senior institutional leader, I mean, how can other provosts, presidents, senior institutional leaders start to create space for collaboration between administrative and academic leaders when it comes to developing policies and, and even programs for micro-credentialing? I do think these are very important and complicated conversations that are going on in universities like mine. At the University of California, which is one of the nation's largest, 10 campuses, 300,000 students. It's a, a massive enterprise. And it has long had a robust continuing education division as well as um, agricultural extension programs. I mean, some of these predate the university's existence, uh, you know, when way, way back when, when universities were providing the first scientific advice to farmers. Um, that was a very different kind of education as well. What we have to do is to open up to the, um, the kind of key benefits that each of these segments of our institution serve. They have a kind of core student body that they serve. Our continuing education divisions serve a very different group than the, 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 the day programs that are mostly 18 to 22 year olds. But they contain uh, wisdom and experience that turns out to have more application than people might've thought to begin with as we become more attuned to the needs of a diverse population in that 18 to 22 year old space. So as we were talking about before you started recording, as universities become far more sensitive to the need to be open to students who are from low-income households, students of color, first-generation students, 
some of their needs to blend family responsibilities with going to college don't look all that different from the continuing education student because the pressures are much the same. So some of the flexibility that continuing education provides, more flexible scheduling, more remote education, more online opportunities, turns out to be helpful to students who are low-income students in the conventional day programs. And if we want to be sure that they are able to complete their degrees and that they don't face continuing racial gaps or income gaps in completion rates, some of the flexibilities that inhere in the continuing education space turn out to be quite useful on the other side. Similarly, if we do have students, and we do, who face life challenges and end up leaving without getting their degrees, and then we try to repatriate them in order for them to benefit from the investment they've already made, sometimes Mm -hmm. they're only a couple of classes short Those students, by the time we get to them, are not going to be able to come back to our campuses and re-enroll as a residential student. So some of the flexibilities that continuing ed provides will turn out to be very valuable for that re-entry student. So I think this is all tied up with our continuing understanding of our social responsibility to address a much broader population than was the case 50 years ago even in uh, public institutions. And that's where learning across the boundary you've asked about is so important because the continuing education division has already learned a lot about what are what is needed for students who are not in that conventional age and you know uh, benefiting from the bank of mom and dad. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's fascinating, right? It's all about from the student's perspective, they have a relationship with the institution, not the department. Um, and it, it, it is kind of interesting to start thinking about a, a singular institution approach to serving that learner over, you know, over the course of a lifetime, as opposed to, you know, well, now they're part of this college, another part of that college, another part of that college. It it makes sense from a bureaucratic complexity standpoint, but not necessarily from a seamless learner experience standpoint. True. I am curious very quickly, and I, I'm well aware that we're so short on time, <laughs> uh, but uh, when you think about the the responsibility at the system office, now this is the second system office that that you've led academic right. the, yeah. the academic programs for. How much capacity do you have at the system level to influence and create change at, at the campus level, or to at least to support maybe change at the campus level? So system offices uh, occupy a very uh, a special uh, role in a, in in institutions like ours. They do not have command and control authority. They are not like corporations where people at my level could say, you know, you must do this. It's it, These are collaborative, cooperative institutions that depend much more on persuasion and on, um, you know, the ability to articulate common interests than they do on line control. And I think that that's important to recognize. Nonetheless, the institutions that I work with the chancellors I work with, the provosts that I work with, are interested in learning how other parts of the this broad system are, are speaking to problems that they face. We all have certain problems in common that we need to share solutions. And the sharing is what the system office is best at. It's best at bringing people together, uh, sometimes at experimenting, of trying, trying to develop experiments and evaluations that, that, that can be spread. Where they where they seem to make sense, 
Um, but I think that when when systems work well, as I think this one does, it's because people have come to recognize they have something to learn from their counterparts. Um, and we develop institutions that enable them to do that, meaning I have regular meetings with all of the provosts, regular meetings with all of the chancellors. And it's during those regular meetings where the problems we have in common or the mission we're trying to accomplish is on the docket. And then the whole point is to share the range of solutions that are being developed. And sometimes we can promote new ones and sometimes we can get the state of California or when I was in Massachusetts, the state of Massachusetts to step in and provide some resources that encourage a particular kind of, of growth. So in Massachusetts, there was a lot of interest in uh, expanding early college in the high schools. Mm -hmm. And the state was willing to bankroll that and we ran with it and developed programs that I think have been quite successful. In California, there's a tremendous amount of interest in smoothing the way for transfer students between the community colleges and the state universities and the University of California. And the state has been enormously helpful and influential at providing resources to encourage that kind of California master plan um, efficiency. So the, it, it's partnerships with the state, it's partnerships internally, but it's not command and control. It never has been. Absolutely. Catherine, just one final question to close this out. Um, you're back in the Bay Area now. If someone's coming to dinner in, in San Francisco or Oakland, where do they need to go for dinner? If they can get a reservation and they think about it six months in advance, everybody <laughs> wants to go to Chez Panisse in Berkeley, which is a, you know, a legend in culinary arts. It's a tremendous institution. Um, if they can get up to the wine country, there are fantastic restaurants in the vineyards, which um, you know I love to do once in a while. So yes, the Bay Area is a mecca for uh, fine dining and uh, as well as good pizza. <laughs> Absolutely. Catherine, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Really Great to see you once again. Thanks again. You as well. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible by a partnership between Modern Campus and The Evolution. The Modern Campus Engagement Platform powers solutions for non-traditional student management, web content management, catalog and curriculum management, student engagement and development, conversational text messaging, career pathways, and campus maps and virtual tours. The result, innovative institutions can create learner-to-earner life cycle that engages modern learners for life, while providing modern administrators with the tools needed to streamline workflows and drive high efficiency. To learn more and to find out how to modernize your campus, visit moderncampus.com. That's moderncampus.com.